We're in um, week number eight of a series where we're walking through the New Testament book of Romans. Romans is tough. Uh, Romans is a book that not a lot of people preach on. Not a lot of people like to read it devotionally because it's really complex theologically. And our desire through this series is to really unpack it and, um, and to help it make sense to us, to not ignore the truths that are buried there, but to unearth those truths and let them speak to our lives. And this morning, we're going to be diving into something that gets profoundly ignored in today's society. Um, and let me just warn you, like, if you're new here, it's not normally like this. This could be a little heavy for the next few minutes, so I'm just going to warn you. Usually we're pretty light, but I want to start by talking about my kids. Uh, two of them were on stage today, my son-in-law, TJ, and my daughter, Morgan. Um, my kids, when they were born, they could do no wrong. Anybody else feel that way? Yeah. Yeah, even like they cried when they were first born, they cried in the night. And I remember those first few weeks when they were crying in the night, and I actually, like, it was heartwarming to me. I would think, oh, man, like, that child is so amazing and so beautiful. That lasts... That lasted like a month, right? <laughs> and the cries were less beautiful. But then, I mean, even those first, I mean, that first little season with your child, they just seem so beautiful and so innocent. Then they learn how to walk and talk and be disobedient. And I don't know if it happens to everybody. I know it happened for me, but there's a moment when you look at your child and you think to yourself, there is something inside of you that, that you there is some rebellion in you. Like at some point, a child shows this. I remember we had houses early on that had either wood stoves or fireplaces. And it didn't matter what we did. It was like the kids were just, they gravitated towards something hot that would burn them and cause permanent scarring in their psychology, right? And so no matter how many times, you're like, no, I quit doing it. And you would, you would instruct them. And I just begin to see this thing inside of them. And there's this refusal that you see inside of children. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah. There is something inside of every human that we share, uh, we all have it in common, that not only explains what's going on with my kids or your kids, but it explains so many other things and especially why things have gone wrong. By the way, you do realize things have gone wrong, right? Things have gone wrong. Uh, globally, we can look around at frustration and despair globally and we go, something's gone wrong, right? It doesn't take long to just, you just open up the newspaper any given day if you still get the newspaper. I don't know why I said that. You can call somebody on your rotary phone too while you're at it. I don't know, but, um, <laughs> but you see it, right? And then personally, we see it. Personally, there's people that we love that are hurting and people that we um, are around every day. We see their suffering and we hear about stories and, and it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're not a Christian. Um, People in today's culture, we can't accept how things are. It's the evidence of our awareness of the brokenness is the effort that we make to try to repair this. If you look at uh, the fights that go on, we fight the bad guys and then we sort of ask the question, well, who are the bad guys now? Because we don't know who the good guys are and the bad guys are. Or we, we spend all the money trying to resource and solve the problem. Or governments pass laws. Or education gets tweaked. Or medical research increases. We do all these different things. But it seems like no matter how you slice it, none of it really works. But we continue to do all of it because we see the brokenness. Um, I just say this. As a pastor, I've had a front row seat for 26 or 27 years now. And one of the primary things that I deal with every day is brokenness. Uh, I see destruction. I see chaos. I see mayhem. I see victims. I see perpetrators. And it's families. And it's workplaces. And it's environments. It's all over the place. In fact, I, I think sometimes people see me and they think, yeah, he's kind of funny and goofy. And, and if you ever see me not on a Sunday, you definitely would think that. But 
Um, Beneath the surface for me, there's a heaviness, not a desperation, but there's a heaviness that's in my heart most days. There's There's an awareness for me that something has gone wrong and that the world is not as it should be. I think that's what drives me to love the church and to love Jesus so much, is this awareness. I carry this burden for brokenness and I hate seeing people get hurt and I hate seeing other people get hurt by other people and I, and, and I hate the hurt that I've caused in people, all of those different things, it's heavy. I remember at one point in my life, I remember one night I was thinking, I, was, I had read Paul's words multiple times in my life that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I remember like reading that and thinking, stop with the pity party. Like, what is your problem? You know, like to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like I'd rather be dead, but if I'm alive, I guess I'll live for Jesus. That's kind of what I read it like. And then I remember one night there was this evening when I found myself just the ache of the brokenness of our world. I remember thinking, Lord, the only reason that I'm on this planet is for you. And I identified in that moment. But I also know something else. I know that Paul went on living in Christ. He understood the root cause. He knew why this was there. And he knew the answer to this. And he understood why it happened. And so he had a solution. Not a treatment for symptoms. And I think that's really important in our culture, especially today. We like to treat symptoms. We don't like to solve problems. But Paul actually knew the problem. And he had the solution to the problem. And I don't know about you, but I'd love to know the answer. When I look at the brokenness of the world, I'd love to know the answer. What's the solution to this problem? So in Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul begins to unpack this. He begins to explain this to us. And he uses a word that is not a popular word to use in our culture. And we're going to use it a lot today. But if you have your Bible, I want you to, we're going to read, starting in verse, um, we're going to cover 6 to 21, but we're actually going to start in verse 12 reading, and then we're going to go back to verse 6 in a minute. But I want to start in verse 12, and you can follow along with me if you don't have a Bible, but it says this. It says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift of the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a three-letter explanation for the brokenness in the world. Sin. What's sin? How do we define this? I'm going to do something, like I said, really unpopular today. I'm going to unpack sin. I want to talk about sin, sinners, and sinning, and all the sin stuff. We're going to do that today. Sound like fun? Yeah. Some of you are really weird. That's good. I like that. Um, I think if you hang with me till the end, I think you're actually going to be glad you did. 
But I want to do this a little more philosophically and logically, which might require you to, at certain points as I'm talking today, depending on where you come from and, and your defensiveness, you need to park any offense or need to park any defensiveness off to the side and just, um, just listen for a few minutes and kind of take this in and think about this. I'm going to start in a very interesting place. The Hebrews, they have a word um, that they use frequently, and it's a word that I use a lot around here at B4, and it's the word shalom. Uh, shalom, we often know as a greeting. It's far more than a greeting. Um, shalom means perfection. It means wholeness. Shalom is everything as it should be. It's beauty. It's glory. It's honor. It's love. It's reconciliation. It's no wars, no famines, no disease, no death, no tears, no suffering, no loss, no mourning, no funerals, no locks on doors, no police officers, no jails, no soldiers, no need, because there's shalom. That's what shalom is. Everything that is not shalom is sin. Sin is the marring of shalom. Sin is the vandalization of shalom, the attacking of shalom. It's war on shalom. It shows up as death and it shows up as suffering and it shows up as injustice and boredom and annoyance and miseries and fears and illness and pain and sorrow and grief and despair and nuisance and tragedy and the list goes on. That's how it shows up. And the Bible uses this sort of constellation of images to talk about sin. Um, it talks about sin as rebellion, as folly, as abuse, as madness, as treason, as death, as hatred, as spiritual idolatry, missing the mark, wandering from the path, uh, irrationality, pride, selfishness, blindness, deafness, a hard heart, a stiff neck, delusion, unreasonableness, and self-worship, just to name a few. Sin is omission and it's commission. That means that there are things that we're supposed to do that we don't do and there are things we're not supposed to do that we do do. I'll give you some examples. I'm sure some of you are like, yes, give us more examples of how bad we are, right? So sin includes, and it's not limited to, our thoughts. Our thoughts count. Our words, including the ones we type, <laughs> they count. Our deeds, what we do. Our motives, why we do what we do. Uh, idolatry is sin. When, when we give ourselves to someone or something other than Jesus or trade Jesus for something or someone else, um, it's violating our own conscience where the Spirit of God has convicted us. It includes perversion, which is using good things in bad ways. Um, technology, great example of that. You can use it all sorts of ways. It includes pollution, which is taking something that's good and adding something to it that's evil, so it's defiled. It's um, turning good things into God things, like money or sex or fame or power, um, intelligence, achievement, comfort. Those are fine, but when you turn them into gods, they become idolatry. Um, it's finding your identity in anything other than Jesus. I'll give you an example of this one. Um, I was talking to a mother who had some teenage and young 20s kids one day, and they were, they were teetering on going off the rails. You know what I'm talking about? And she was worried. And I asked her, why are you so distraught? And she said, I've given my whole life to being a mother. And if my children are a wreck, my whole life is a wreck. And I said, so that would mean your life would be worthless. And she basically nodded and said, yes. And I said, no, you're an image bearer of God. And he loves you. And you are to be a good mother, but if your children wander and, and, 
and your life comes to an end and you see no value in your existence, then you just used Jesus to be a better mom and you made it about being a mom, not about being a follower of Jesus. And I could see the light bulb go on. Now, all of, all of this stuff sort of leads us to another question. Is all sin equal? That's a question I hear people say. Well, is all sin equal? And in one regard, it is. Um, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 says that we're to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. We're supposed to be perfect. Anything other than perfect is sin. And uh, I haven't met anyone that's perfect yet, right? James, Jesus' brother, says in James 2.10, he says if you violate one point of God's law, you violate all of it. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 5 says, like, things that we think about, things that we just feel in our hearts, they count. But on another hand, even though um, all sin is equal, they don't all have the same consequences. Some are greater than others. But the point is, and I know this is really fun so far, there is sin in the world and there's sin in you. There's sin in the world and there's sin in you. And before you get defensive... Before you think about the implications or go to the thing, what's next, I just want you to stop here and stop and just simply say, maybe in your mind, just say, okay, I'm a sinner who sins and sin is in me. Don't go any further than that. Because then you ask the question, okay, how did I get here then? And Paul actually answers this. And I want to do something really interesting with what we read in Romans 5. I want to break it into two parts. There were sort of some bullet points that we take out of this. And Paul tells a story in Romans 5. And I just want you to look at these with me. They're on the screen. In verse 12, he says, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's the first point. Then he says, many died. Verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17 says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And then verse 18 says, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. 19 says, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And verse 21 says that sin reigned in death. He explains the whole story, but he really is pointing back to the opening pages of your Bible. And it's not just a story. It's an explanation of why we are who we are. Through Adam, we inherited sin, which is why the kid touches the fireplace, even though you tell them not to, right? We're born with a broken nature, a sin nature that we inherited from Adam. And so what, what Paul is saying here is Adam is like your father, and when he sinned, your whole family was involved. There's this new DNA strand that's been inserted into your lineage. Adam is our representative, and he represented us actually pretty well when you think about it. Sometimes we get mad and go, why did you have to do that? But he actually did what we would have done, right? You and I would have made the same decision. And he's our head. And when he made that decision, he made it on behalf of all of us. It affects all of us. That's the nature of this story. That's the reason the story was being told. Why did we get where we are? That means that today you and I have this nature inside of us. You are not born as a clean slate or just a really good person. In fact, Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity or sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Some translations say that I was sinful from my mother's womb. Psalm 58 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Ephesians 2, Paul writes, We are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we're conceived with a nature of rebellion towards God. That's what he's saying. Your natural proclivities 
because of your sin nature, are to repeat the sins of Adam and Eve. That's what we do. And all of who we are gets affected. All of who we are gets stained. It gets, it gets marred. It gets tainted by sin. It's our feelings. It's our thoughts. It's our will. It's our emotions. And it's real. Sin is real. And Paul paints a really vivid picture of this. There's no denying it. But now that we've kind of had the doom and gloom, I've helped everybody feel really good about themselves, hopefully today, I want to show you something really beautiful that he says here. Because I think we miss this in what Paul's writing. Because the next logical question would be, well, then what do we do with sin, right? If this is just a reality in my life, then what do I do with this? How do I respond to this reality? And so a moment ago, I did the bullet points of these verses. I want you to look at what's also in these exact same verses when you pull these things out of it. Check this out. It's an alternative picture, an alternative story. So back to Romans 5, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. Much more we have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Verse 16. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. 17. Those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So my first list a few minutes ago, that was what we got from Adam. But this list, what I just read, is what we have in Jesus. And Paul intermingles these two things. But I think when we pull this out, we understand what he's actually saying. Under Adam, we receive his sin. But under Jesus, we receive his sinlessness. Under Adam, we die. But under Jesus, we live. Under Adam, we experience condemnation. But under Jesus, we experience justification. Under Adam, we're unrighteous. Under Jesus, we're righteous. Adam's sin is imputed, it's, it's reckoned, it's imparted to you, but Jesus's righteousness and salvation through his sinless life, his death and his resurrection, that life is given to you. And so the question that we're asking is, well, then how do I respond to sin? Based on this information, how do I respond to the reality that I'm a sinful person and that these things are being said? And, and this is right here where everything seems to go sideways for so many of us. Uh, and they go sideways for a reason, and I'll get to that. But how do we respond to sin? Let me give you a few ways um, that we typically respond. Here's just a list of a few. Um, number one, we minimize it, right? Some people, we love to minimize our, our sin. That's not that big of a deal, you know? Quit making a big deal about it, right? You're totally overacting. Yes, I did it. Big deal. Just let it go, right? We minimize it. Or number two, we make exceptions. Like, I know it looks bad, <laughs> But if you knew what was going on in the moment, then, you know, you'd understand, like, I really wasn't that out of line. And so we make, we make excuses, right? We make exceptions for ourselves. Uh, the third way is we blame shift. Something happens and we go, well, it's not my fault. This isn't my fault that this happened, right? I mean, look back to Genesis. What does Adam do? The first thing he does, he goes, it was the woman you gave me, right? Blames his wife. Like, of course he does that, right? And the woman says, no, it's not. It was the devil, right? And they're just in this cycle of blame shifting, right? So we, we blame shift. It wasn't really my fault, and, and I, I shouldn't be held accountable for it. Number four, we cause a diversion. I do this one with my wife all the time. It's amazing. She's not in this service, so I can tell you, right? But she'll confront me, and when she confronts me on something, I just confront her on the way that she's confronted me. 
Like, why do you always come at me that way? Like, you use that tone? Like, it would be way more beneficial. And so I just cause a diversion, right? And pretty soon we're now talking about relational dynamics and I've totally skipped the offense, right? That's a, that's a diversionary tactic that I do not atone. Like, I don't tell you all to do that. I'm just telling you I do that, right? Because I'm a sinner. Don't tell my wife about that, by the way. I won't use that one in the next service. Uh, number five uh, is partial confession. You ever done this one? You're like... I know I did more, but I'm just going to tell you about a little bit, you know. Number six, we feel really bad. We just feel bad. Paul actually um, talks to the Corinthian church about worldly sorrow, which is, I feel bad about the consequences of what I did. And so we feel really bad. We like see the consequences. It's like, ah, I don't like that. So those are the ways that we confront or the ways that we respond to the sinfulness that we face in our, in our, in our own lives. But the question is, Why? Why do we respond in those ways? And there are two things, and both of them are rooted in religiosity or moralism, which, by the way, you don't have to be a Christian to be a moralist. And we need to be really clear from a philosophical standpoint, there are a lot of people that are moralists that aren't Christians, but the reasons that we respond this way to our brokenness or our wrongdoing or our sinfulness, they're, they're rooted in either religiosity or moralism. And, and here are the two reasons. We either respond to these things out of pride or we respond to these things in this way out of shame. For some of us, we can't bear to be wrong, right? Because being wrong is equated with being bad and we could never be bad. We're better than that. We're bigger than that. We're better than other people, right? And so there's this spiritual pride or this moralistic pride that rises up inside of us. And so we evade admitting our sin because well, that would make us just like everybody else, right? Then I'm like everybody else and I'm no different than anyone else. That's the pride. The shame comes in mostly for those of us who grew up in religious environments that focused on sin management rather than the gospel of grace. And again, a, a, a picture of what sinners were and what they were, where they were going was painted so strongly that now in a culture of shame, we do the same things. We avoid and we evade and we try to minimize, we hide and both of those occur when we ignore what, what we're really getting at here with Paul. The real question shouldn't be how do we respond to sin. The real question should be how does God respond to sin? Let's go back to the story of Adam and think about this. First, he judges sin. I'm going to be really painstakingly clear about this. He judges it. He tells the man, here's your sin. He tells the woman, here's your sin and the consequences. He tells Satan, here's your sin and the consequences. He judges. You need to know that God judges sin. He sees it for what it is. But then, and this is where religion and church have left the script. Secondly, God gives grace. He pursues them. You ever think about this in this story? They don't pursue God. They actually go hide from God. And the story is that God goes and he finds them. And he speaks to them. Do you realize how kind that is? That in this moment, God goes and finds them. He doesn't just say, I'm done with you and alienates himself. He goes to them and then God teaches them. Here's what you did. And here's what you did. And here's what you did. When you hear the... These words in Genesis, do you think of a judge that's angry or do you think of a father who's giving wise counsel to children that they didn't heed? 
here's what you did and here's what you did. There's this like teachable moment. Do you see what you've done? Let me explain this to you. I love you, but what you've done is horrible and there's consequences for this. That's a loving father. That's a loving dad. But then you notice he covers their shame. We miss this in the story of Genesis all the time. It's actually connected to the cross. It's a foreshadowing that he covers their shame. He maintains their dignity. Even strangely enough, when he sends them away forever in a state of sin and death, he, he actually says, you're actually going to physically die. That's actually a gift. Because had they forever lived in a state of sin and death, there would have never been freedom. But he actually says, no, I'm going to allow you to die so that you can be resurrected someday to new life. Even that's compassionate. And it, and it connects directly to what Paul is saying in Romans 5. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Where Adam sinned, Jesus was sinless. Where condemnation came through Adam, salvation came through Jesus. Where Adam's sin was imputed and reckoned and parted to us, Jesus and his righteousness is imparted imputed and reckoned to us. In fact, I love the verses that precede what I just read, and so I want to read these. Paul's explanation of sin and what re re resolves the problem comes in verse 6. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet still sinners... Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we, are also, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We receive reconciliation. Did, did, you, did you catch this part? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled. God comes to us when we were in rebellion. And he says, let me get you on the path back towards shalom. Let me lead you back to this place. And see, healing comes to us when we're honest about our brokenness. That's what Paul's getting at here. Honesty about our brokenness, transparency around our sinfulness, that's what God wants because that actually leads to healing. And let me explain this and I'm gonna close with this. Um, honesty around sin leads to healing but it's not because it's like some magic pill or like there's this secret phrase that we utter and so something happens in the atmosphere. It's not a switch that we flip spiritually. So our biggest wounds as people, they revolve around love and acceptance. And they trace themselves back all the way back to the creator of the universe, to God. We have this default as human beings to think of God as angry, that he's just waiting for us to fall. But here's what happens. And I need you just to track with me for a moment. When you and I are transparent and we're open about our sin, and then in that vulnerability, 
we realize or we experience the unconditional love and the acceptance and the grace of God. That has a profound impact on who we are in that moment. And then from that moment moving forward, when I am just completely transparent and I just say, no, this is who I am. And then in that moment, that realize that God's love has not changed a single degree for me in that moment, we experience grace. We encounter the grace of God. And when we encounter the grace of God, it compels us even more to love him and to listen to him and to lean into him. In that moment, it's like I hear this, you're loved and you're accepted and you're forgiven. And in that moment, I begin to experience healing. Are you with me? That's when we know the love of God. That is actually when we experience the grace of God. That's when this whole thing gets real. It's not when we put on our best face and pretend to be perfect, but when we actually admit our brokenness and find out that God still loves us. That's when the rubber meets the road. Healing comes when we see God as a loving father who's restoring us in spite of our brokenness. And we don't need to hide. We simply need to be open to him and to what happens next. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? I'm going to offer the benediction this morning, which is a simple prayer that I send you off with. And if you're willing to receive this, maybe hold out your hands and signify physically a reception of this as I'll raise mine and pray this for you. May you be men and women who are uncomfortable with sin, but completely comfortable in the presence of your God admitting it. May you be open and transparent and humble and may you experience unconditional love and grace from your heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Love you guys so much. Thanks for being here today, you guys. Please hang out. Talk to somebody. Meet somebody. Set a coffee appointment with someone. Create community. We'll see you guys next Sunday. See you later.